1: Hi, this is Maureen Nemetsky, pediatric emergency medicine doctor and co-chair of the Joma Preventative Health Hotline. I am very fortunate today to have with me um, Dr. Richard V. Grazi. Dr. Grazi is the director of the Division of Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility at Maimonides Medical Center and the founder of Genesis Fertility and Reproductive Medicine. The Genesis program is a nationally recognized center of excellence for the treatment of infertility and the only full-service fertility program in Brooklyn. Dr. Grazi and the Genesis staff have been leaders in developing approaches to treatment that sensitively accommodate the special needs of Orthodox Jewish couples with infertility. Dr. Grazi is the author of numerous scientific and scholarly articles, as well as two books, Be Fruitful and Multiply, and Overcoming Infertility, a guide for Jewish couples. He has been honored for his contributions to reproductive medicine by Time and Mahon Pua, He has been named by New York Magazine as one of the city's top doctors for over 20 years and is ranked by the Castle Connolly Medical Guide among America's top reproductive specialists. In November 2019, Dr. Grazi was honored by Resolve, the National Infertility Association, for his advocacy on behalf of establishing an insurance mandate in New York State for IVF and fertility preservation. His work resulted in opening access to advanced reproductive care for 2.5 million people, and we are really lucky to have him here with us today. Dr. Grazi, thank you so much for speaking with Joma today.
2: Thank you for your kind invitation, Dr. Noel. Pleasure to be here with you.
1: It's actually Dr. Nemetsky now.
2: Oh, that's right. I know you since you're very, very small. So uh, I think of you as a a Nol. But go ahead. All
1: right. Um, So I guess sort of to just start, do you think you can tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into the field of reproductive medicine?
2: Uh, Sure. I can tell you a little or a lot. You can tell me when to stop. But uh, to try to be brief about it, um in the summer of 1978 specifically july 26 1978 was a it was the summer after my first year of medical school i had just been married and was on a honeymoon with my wife i um, had an epiphany and uh, the history behind that epiphany was that in on the day before there was a little baby born by the name of Louise Brown. Louise Brown, for those of you who don't recognize the name, was the first human being to be born after conception in a Petri dish. And to me, this represented an astounding scientific and medical breakthrough, and it excited me a lot. I was no stranger to the problem of infertility. It's a very common problem. And here was a woman who was not just infertile. Louise Brown's mother, Leslie, had had both of her fallopian tubes removed because she had tubal pregnancies two times, and that was the standard treatment for these so-called ectopic pregnancies in those days. What that means is that she was absolutely permanently sterile. And yet, this little baby, Louise Brown, was on the front cover of every newspaper practically in the world. It was an achievement that uh, was likened to the landing of the first man on the moon. It was uh, the subject, it was the thought, it was the idea that nobody believed could ever happen. We take in vitro fertilization as a, a given today. Most people in their reproductive years today never knew a day of life before IVF was possible. But when it happened for the first time, it was astounding, amazing, and somewhat troubling, depending on how you looked at uh, the technology. It caused a lot of controversy when it first came. People exaggerated what it was about and what would happen if people would be born that way. But I had no such thoughts. To me, it was a combination of science and medicine at its best. And uh, I looked more into it, and I thought more about it. And uh, I realized that uh, it had tremendous potential, not only for people like Leslie Brown, but also for people who might be uh, sterile or infertile for other reasons and in fact uh, those things came true over time and by now some something in the neighborhood of 8 million persons have been born since that first so-called test tube baby of course the road to becoming a reproductive specialist was long and arduous and i had no idea what would be ahead of me but the field has evolved to such an extent that in most corners of the world, IVF is a routine treatment, in fact, the most efficacious treatment for infertility, and uh, is something that is, uh, has gone from the last resort treatment where the, the uh, chances would be very low for it working. Uh, the people who brought us IVF, doctors Steptoe and Edwards, had done the procedure on 100 women before they got their first baby Louise. But today it's, um, it's a routine part of reproductive medicine and it is an incredibly useful tool for those of us who work in the field of fertility medicine.
1: So that's, that's definitely amazing. Millions of babies who wouldn't have been here without it. Um, so you mentioned reproductive medicine and I've also heard your field referred to as reproductive endocrinology. What exactly does that mean? For what
2: does reproductive endocrinology mean
1: for patients? so let me explain
2: so endocrinology is the study of hormones and glands uh endocrine uh, organs uh, secrete hormones uh you most people are probably aware that there are internists and pediatricians who have subspecialty training in the field of endocrinology. They treat things like diabetes and thyroid disease and disorders of the pituitary gland, growth disorders, etc. Reproductive endocrinologists treat mainly reproductive disorders that result from disorders of the endocrine glands. So the glands that produce sperm and eggs are our area of interest and uh, that includes the controlling glands that are in the brain, the higher centers that control Uh, development of uh, the gametes, so-called, both eggs and sperm. And uh, when those break down, then we um, we have to call on our um, bag of tricks, our uh, so-called fertility drugs. We should speak about what that means later on. And um, we use those to manipulate the endocrine system in order to help couples have children. That's why we're called reproductive endocrinologists.
1: Thank you. And so I guess for couples who want to have children, at what point should they start looking for someone like you versus, you know, saying, let's try for a little while longer? When would it be considered a problem if a couple wants to have a child and has been trying but has not been able to conceive yet?
2: Well, of course, that's a very uh, personal question and needs to be answered by individual couples according to their uh, marriage goals, their family planning goals, their religious background, their cultural background, etc. But medically speaking, a couple is deemed to have infertility if they've been trying to conceive for 12 months without success. The reason 12 months is uh, selected as the as the milestone months is because 95% of couples who have normal fertility will have conceived within that period of time. Yes, it is true that some couples conceive on their first try, but it's also true that some couples will conceive on their 12th try, and that's all normal. In fact, there's a small percentage, about 5% of couples who will have a child naturally who will take longer than 12 months to conceive but the average successful pregnancy takes 6 months to happen and there's a reason for that it has to do with how complicated it is to produce another human being and how how important the genetic normality is of both the sperm and egg that get together in order to produce an embryo and that that uh, system does not always work correctly. And that's why couples who've been trying for a month or two don't even think about going to a fertility specialist because most people know that it takes time. But there's a scientific reason why it takes time. It has nothing to do with doing things right or wrong, et cetera, et cetera. It just has to do with the complex mechanisms for producing another human being.
1: So for couples who've been trying for a year or longer than a year and still, you know, can't conceive a child, what are some of the reasons that might be?
2: So let me just get back to that last question. I should qualify that, that fertility potential is very much age dependent. And uh, we can talk about why that is later, but we do advise couples who are where the woman is beyond the age of 35 not to wait the full 12 months and that's because time can be ticking for them and we would like to get a diagnosis and or reassurance that there is no problem before we start to treat those couples in terms of the causes of infertility they break down basically into the following categories So, about 40% of infertility is a female factor, another 40% is a male factor, and about 20% of infertility is because of both male and female factors combined. When it comes to the female factors, and I just wonder if this audience is Mainly female, but if they are, let's just concentrate on that because males are kind of easier. They either have good sperm or they don't have good sperm. There are obviously a lot of causes for why that might be. But um, the female system is a little bit more complicated because there is a menstrual cycle and an ovulatory cycle. And many causes of infertility are based on the fact that uh, ovulation is either not occurring. It's occurring sporadically or it's occurring with some type of hormonal deficiency that is unable to sustain a pregnancy. the other big the other big category of female infertility is anatomical, so if you have, for example tubal blockage like Leslie Brown, where both of your tubes have been removed or blocked by infection or other conditions such as a a disease called endometriosis then that can prevent the sperm from meeting the egg inside the fallopian tube which is the site of fertilization and that can be a common cause of infertility as well i should say that there are many causes of both male and female infertility that are unexplained that doesn't mean that they cannot be treated almost all causes of infertility can be treated in some way. But it means that we need to often turn to empirical treatment. By empirical, I mean that we treat the couple in such a manner as to enhance the chances of their becoming pregnant with each cycle that goes by, with each month that goes by. And that can be a combination of medications. It can be doing something called intrauterine insemination, which is a way of getting more sperm up into the uh, higher reproductive tract, and it could be in vitro fertilization.
1: So you mentioned earlier, like for for couples, that for older couples, you might want them to start start coming to see a reductive endocrinologist sooner, and you mentioned that you know, time is ticking, and A lot of women have heard the phrase, you know, your biological clock is ticking. You need to get married young and have children young because your biological clock is ticking. Can you sort of elaborate on what people mean by that and what that means to a couple that wants to have a child?
2: Yes, I can explain that. And it's uh, a little bit depressing because it will point out the fact that biology is a little bit less fair to women than it is to men. Men during their reproductive lives, make sperm continuously. And we don't really worry about men in terms of their age. We worry about them for a lot of other things. Don't get me started with that. We worry about men only when they're in much older ages, in in their 50s and 60s, because there have been some... Uh, problems in the children who are born of older fathers. Obviously, most kids are born uh, without a problem, but the incidence of problems is a little bit higher in uh, much older men. The, uh, The problem with women is the following, and it's just a biological fact, that girls are born with their entire lifetime supply of eggs. They never make new eggs. The eggs are stored in the ovaries, The average girl is born with about a million eggs and there's a constant depletion that occurs in the egg supply over the lifetime. By the time the average girl reaches puberty, there are only about 400,000 eggs left in the ovaries and there's a steady drop off that happens with aging. So that by the time a woman reaches on average about the age of 50 or 51, the entire egg supply has been lost. The problem with aging in women in terms of reproduction is that it's not always apparent to women. We see women who are in their late 30s, early 40s, even in their late 40s, who have no idea whatsoever that their fertility potential has been completely compromised because they still have regular cycles. And when they do the tests, the at-home tests, They can see that they're ovulating. But what they don't realize is that those eggs are the last ones to go. And so the healthiest ones, and I'm talking about from a genetic perspective, and if you're interested, I can explain in more detail how that works, but I don't think it's important now. But the best eggs to make a baby are the ones that ovulate earliest in life. That's why teenagers and And women in their 20s and early 30s usually have a much easier time getting pregnant than women who are past the age of 35 and certainly women who are past the age of 40. By the time 45 rolls around, unless you're the type of woman who's had 6 or 8 or 12 pregnancies, your fertility potential is probably done. And that's because of that the uh, the supply of eggs that remains by that time is mainly composed of eggs that have genetic abnormalities, which does not mean that they can't be fertilized during regular relations. But if they are fertilized, they either do not implant, and that's a protection measure that uh, is built into the uterus. It knows when an embryo is abnormal and so it rejects the embryo it either doesn't implant or the embryo that has implanted if it's genetically abnormal will miscarry most of the time and the majority of miscarriages happen because of chromosomal or genetic abnormalities so not only does uh, the the fertility potential of women decrease as they age but the risk of miscarriage goes way up because if they do get pregnant they have a higher chance of having become pregnant with an embryo that is not genetically balanced and is unhealthy and cannot lead to a live-born pregnancy. That's what we call the biological clock. I don't want to overdo that. I don't think that uh, women who are 25 years old have to worry about the biological clock. But 10 years later, that becomes a more serious problem Because there is this uh, end to natural female fertility. And I I might add that one of the problems that we deal with, with older women, and I say older specifically, I don't mean old, because the women who are even 50 years old are by no means old. Most women today can expect, if they're healthy, to live to uh, 100 or more. But they don't realize that when they're standing in line at the supermarket and they see uh, celebrities who have just had twins at the age of 50 for their first pregnancy, that's not their eggs. They're likely using eggs from somebody else. Yes, it's true. Hashem is great and Hashem does miracles, et cetera, et cetera, But doctors can't do miracles. And it doesn't matter how much money they have or how much fame they have. It's very difficult to induce a pregnancy in a woman who's never been pregnant before and is 50 years old. Um, in, In the mid 40s, yes, it can happen, but it happens few and far between, again, unless that woman has already had a lot of deliveries beforehand. So there is this misperception among many women and men that as long as they're having normal menstrual cycles and ovulating, that they have perfectly good fertility, and that cannot be farther from the truth.
1: So it sounds like an older couple really just shouldn't wait that long before seeking help if they're not conceiving, which is... Well,
2: what we see commonly, and it's so frustrating, is couples who, and I'm talking about secular couples, this is really not an issue in the community, but we see couples who get married at the age of 35, and they're saving money to buy a house, or there's they're still in school pursuing an advanced degree, and many of them are using birth control and they roll in at forty or forty two and they're first trying to get pregnant maybe they they've started two years ago they don't even realize that they have to go to see to seek help and then they're shocked to find out that uh, the the train has passed it's gone, and we don't have ways of putting new eggs into the ovary. And that's something that, unfortunately, we need to educate our patients about very often, because when I have this discussion, just like I'm having with you right now, but when we have it in the consultation room, many of them will say, well, just give me fertility drugs. And I have to explain to them, fertility drugs do not Put new eggs in your body. Fertility drugs can only do one thing. They can make eggs that are in the ovary ovulate. And sometimes they make more than one egg ovulate. But that doesn't mean that they're going to change the quality of the eggs. Or sometimes a woman will tell me, well, just do in vitro, as if doing in vitro fertilization did not depend on the quality of eggs. And quality and quantity, by the way, go hand in hand. So we have to use uh, venues like this to educate the public about that particular problem. And, and yes, women who get married in their mid-30s, they really should be looking to start their family right away. And uh, for w- women, I would say, who do not have a partner, serious thought needs to be given to freezing eggs, which is not, it's not a, an insurance policy. But it is a heck of a lot better than finding yourself first married at 40, having problems, and then having to face the emotional dilemma of uh, using the donor eggs, which is not only an emotional dilemma, but it is a halachic nightmare for these couples.
1: So if a couple is struggling with infertility, either you know they're young and they've tried for a year or they're not so young and they've tried for a few months and they realize that we have a problem, we need help. What should their first step be? How do they find a reproductive endocrinologist like you?
2: Well, what most people do is probably not the best way to find the doctor, which is they Google the reproductive endocrinologist in the neighborhood and um, they'll find their doctor that way. But Uh, probably a better way to find the reproductive specialist is to consult with the OBGYN. Most women have a gynecologist that they see regularly. And I think those those doctors are better equipped to know who's uh, a professional, who's doing a good job, and um, how patients are treated. And they know that because they're getting their patients back from those doctors and hearing directly from the patients about their experience.
1: So in, that, so in terms of expectations, what should a couple expect when they come to see a reproductive endocrinologist?
2: Well, the first thing to know is that when we see couples who have not had a, um, an evaluation before coming to us, what we do is we advise the couple to have what we call expanded genetic testing. Most couples who are living in the Frum community have been tested by Dory Sharim, which is a fantastic organization, and they are responsible for the elimination of many severe genetic diseases in our communities. But there's only so many tests that Dory Sharim could can offer. And so in the last um, decade or so, there have been different techniques that are used to de- detect carriers of uh, recessive genetic traits. And the importance of this uh, has, been, has been publicized by uh, organizations like Bonnet Olam. But I think at the individual rabbi level, when sometimes when the couples ask, is it okay for me to, for, or for us to have a genetic screen, it doesn't always come back as a positive answer. I, I think sometimes that um, they might be thinking that the doctors want to set their patients up to have abortions or something like that, which is nothing can be farther from the truth. We want to prevent dilemmas that happen when couples who are unscreened and pregnant suddenly find themselves at the obstetrician's office being told that they're. A fetus has a recessive genetic disease that is going to affect them badly, uh, very badly, for the rest of their lives. But it happens, and this is really a, a virtually completely avoidable problem if couples are screened before they try to conceive. And I have a little bit of a, a hyena. Uh, against the obstetrical world where the first genetic screen that's done is usually done when the woman is already pregnant. Right. And that's too late. That's too late. And the screens need to be done at at very early on and before pregnancy occurs. By the way, there are couples who are in their second marriages and who have not been tested to see if they match or don't match quote unquote by um Dorya Sharim, and they need to be they need to be tested. I think that I, as a reproductive endocrinologist, have an obligation, a professional duty to screen my patients because I feel responsible for the outcome of my treatment, and God forbid there should be a couple who's been waiting a year or two years or five years to get pregnant, and they're over the moon happy that they're finally pregnant. And then they have to find out that they have a sick baby waiting to be born. It's devastating. It's life-changing, not in a good way. And um, I would implore couples to be open to being genetically tested. It is true that if we find that the couple are both carriers for a recessive genetic trait, that we use in vitro fertilization to make sure that the baby to be born is health is healthy, but and the goal is not to avoid IVF, which seems to be uh, the shita of many advisors, um, and to use it only as a last resort. The goal should be the birth of a healthy child. So genetic testing is among the first things that we do. The other things that we do, we want to make sure that the the woman to conceive is uh, is uh, immunized against uh, viral diseases that we don't want them to contract when they're pregnant. Uh, we want to counsel them about lifestyle issues because we live in a world that's filled with toxins. In daily life, it's really uh, almost impossible to avoid coming into contact with pollutants and toxins in our food, in our air supply and the things we touch in the plastics that are everywhere, but we want to try to minimize those things. And I I have to say also that uh, weight disorders are prevalent in the community, either being underweight or being severely overweight. That has a tremendous impact, not only on a woman's ability to conceive. Yes, I know it's true, from having had this conversation thousands of times, that. Women who are extremely overweight do get pregnant, but the chances of getting pregnant are less, especially when you have a fertility problem that needs to be taken care of. Also, getting pregnant or you're at a high weight is a risk factor for developing diabetes and high blood pressure and birth defects and needing a C section delivery and having all sorts of complications that uh, cause prematurity. So overweight is bad. Underweight is also bad. And I think people need to know how important it is to lead a healthy lifestyle while the doctor is trying to get their fertility potential maximized. Of course, those are all general issues, the genetic testing, the the lifestyle issues, the avoidance of toxins. But we also do specific fertility testing. We want to know what a woman's egg supply is like. And today it's very simple to do that through a blood test and um, a sonogram where we actually can count the egg follicles in, in, in an individual's ovaries and get an idea of how fast that clock is ticking. Where, where are they in the egg depletion process? Do they, are they 40 years old with the egg reserve of a 25 year old? or are they 30 years old uh, 30 years old with the egg supply of a 45 year old all of those things happen we have patients who we've treated over the years who have gone through menopause in their early 20s and even in their teens and there are women of course who are 45 years old and get pregnant without treatment at all but we want to know where we're standing when we're when we have to treat the couple The other tests that we do are anatomical checks. We want to make sure that the uterus is normal. There's a special X-ray that we can do to make sure that a woman's fallopian tubes are normal. Uh, Besides for the testing, one of the most important things that we do is taking uh, good history, making sure that we know if the woman has had previous pelvic surgery, she's had previous um, pelvic pain that's been unexplained that might lead us to a diagnosis of endometriosis or <clears throat> tubal blockage. We want to know how long she's been trying, if her cycles are regular, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But when all is said and done, when those tests are normal, we do need to evaluate the male. And the best way to evaluate the male contribution is to do a semen analysis. And unfortunately, um, this is something that's not easily done, especially when the woman is very young. They might be waiting two years and they might get advice, oh, just wait another year. Or uh, there are many, many uh, postgame who are extremely machmir on the idea of a man doing a semen analysis. Clearly, every couple should know that semen analysis is not totally asur in all circumstances. There are um, or there are Torah observant men in all communities, including the most Haredi community, who have been diagnosed with male factor problems because they've undergone semen analysis. It needs to be done at a certain time in the right way with the person with the with a um, hashkacha if there's an insemination to be done. But it does eventually get done. The question is, what barriers need to be overcome in order to get the semen analysis done. So uh, many rabbinim will ask us to uh, sample the woman after relations to see whether or not uh, there's uh, sperm present. And even then, if it looks like there's a problem, we may need to repeat that over and over again in terms of uh, meeting the criteria for allowing a semen analysis. And even when we're we get the go-ahead to do a semen analysis that needs to be done uh, only in a certain way, with certain ways of uh, procuring the sperm and and, and uh, maybe using it for fertility purposes. So in at the Genesis program, because we practice not far from the largest Orthodox community outside of Israel, obviously we have protocols that uh, take all of these things into account, And uh, we hope that we're doing it in a a very sensitive way. And we need to be patient uh, also. I have to say that as part of this evaluation and treatment process, it does sometimes sometimes become necessary for the rabbi and the doctor to speak directly on behalf of the, the patient's problem. And that's something that we do quite commonly as part of our practice.
1: That's excellent. So, what? So, we've been touching a lot about some of the um, ethical or religious questions that come up during treatments, and you've mentioned some of the some of them so far in terms of the semen analysis, some of the other t- the genetic testing, and some of the other testing that are done. And I know that you yourself have written extensively on this topic, especially as it relates to Jewish uh, tradition and halacha. And what ha- what about what are some of the resources that are out there for families? Uh, you know maybe varying cultural just backgrounds to help them work through these if they're not fortunate enough to have access to a place like like Genesis that has protocols in place already?
2: Well that is uh, very dependent on what type of uh, community they're living in. In New York I think most reproductive specialists have a feeling and a sensitivity for their orthodox patients. They may not be revising their their medical protocols in terms of treatment, but they certainly do understand that orthodox couples come with a set of problems that is different from secular couples in the sense that there there is a philosophy, a philosophical problem, and the problem is the following. When we deal with secular couples, There's almost nothing that they won't do to have their baby. And yet, when it comes to dealing with an Orthodox couple, I think it is generally true that to the last woman and man standing, they would much prefer not to have a baby than to have a baby while doing something that's in conflict with halacha. That makes the um the doctor surprised sometimes and i obviously have had to explain this to my secular uh you know, colleagues uh many times over, but it is the guiding direction for each couple and what's also important and certainly for me as uh, somebody who is uh, yeshiva trained and living in an a uh, in a uh, torah observant community I never would Try to press my own um, my own interpretation of halacha onto any individual patient. The, the patient's rab or halachic advisor or posek is the one who gives them the go ahead or the uh, or, or the isur to do any specific treatment that we advise. It's not for me to play the posek. So I respect any decision that any couple makes or comes to the office with in terms of what they will do or what they will not do. At the same time, and I think many doctors would uh, agree with me, the last thing that we want is for, just like we do not play the rabbi, the last thing that we want is for the rabbi to play the doctor. And sometimes, that boundary is a boundary that needs to be absolute. And when I say absolute, I personally would much rather speak with the Rav directly about something that I might have advised the patient or some problem that the patient has, rather than uh, having the rabbi sometimes call a doctor that they know who is not me and I'm supposed to be treating the patient and get advice from a third party that's completely unhelpful and uh, and clearly giving medical advice is clearly unhelpful I've been uh, eating breathing and sleeping the problem of uh, fertility for upwards of 3 decades and uh, I think that I'm in a position to know medically what's best for the couple and yet the Rav clearly will know what is halakhically best for the couple. And I think there needs to be an important dialogue that happens when we reach an impasse and the couple just does not know in which direction to turn. And I might say something else in that regard. The, what we call the Orthodox community is certainly not monolithic. Halakha is not uniform and so you could have as a doctor three firm couples with exactly the same problem and all of them will bring three different sets of um, uh, of mutar and asur to the consultation room and if you're not well versed in uh, in these areas it can be extremely confusing so I like I my professional viewpoint is we need to follow the the sake of the couples uh, rabbi and uh, that's where I leave things and I will do whatever I can do professionally to make accommodations for the couple that's in front of me
1: So, so there are some organizations out there that you know Try to help with this process among you no know, architectures <laughs> in the different community, and we know that you've been honored by both a time and Mahan Pu'ah. Do you mind speaking a little bit about what you can tell us about your collaboration with those organizations?
2: Well, I can tell you that uh, i've been doing this for a long time, obviously I just said i've been um, in practice for over thirty years and uh, Back in the day, probably going back to the early 90s, uh, I was involved with uh, A-Time in a very, very significant way. Uh, I helped them get to their start. But they've grown into a really huge organization. They do good things. They do a lot of physician referral. They do a lot of counseling. And uh, I think they're very good at what they do. They are on top of certain things. And uh, they they serve a very important purpose in the frum community. Uh, my involvement with uh, with Machon Pu'ah also goes back to the, uh, the maybe the late 80s, early 90s, when we started doing uh, IUIs, intrauterine insemination. The uh, this was becoming popular in Israel as well, and. The idea of uh, a mistake being made in a lab was so anathema to me that I thought it was uh, kind of an out-of-the-box idea to need a mashkiach in the lab when the sperm were being processed for an IUI. And yet, in those days, some mistakes started to surface and were well publicized, and I realized that The idea of having a mashkiach in the laboratory during certain procedures with gametes was a pretty smart idea. At least it could give comfort to the couple that they didn't have to worry about one other thing, about a mistake being made. And certainly, you know, no malfeasance should ever happen, which has happened in the past. So we were a very early adopter of the, uh, adopter of the concept of Hashkaha in the laboratory. And we started that in, I, I suppose, around 1990, when we were just uh, doing IUIs. We would have the mashkiach come in during the time of sperm processing. But uh, we knew that we were going to grow into a full-service IVF program. And during one of my trips to Israel, I asked around and tried to find out how could you do hashkaha on an IVF procedure? After all, it takes days from the time the eggs are retrieved until the time that the embryos go back. You can't have the mashkiach living in your laboratory. And all uh, all fingers pointed to uh, Rav Menachem Borstein, who was the founder of Machon Pu'ah, which is now also a worldwide organization a fantastic organization that not only gives advice to couples, but also trains rabbis in the field of reproductive halakha. And what I learned from them is how they actually do the day-to-day hashkacha process in the lab. And we were the first IVF program to have that process going. Rob R- 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 Borstein actually came to our office and he taught the rab uh, at the time, and still now Rabbi Friedlander, who is the chaplain at Maimonides, the whole process of doing the uh, hashkacha. We now use uh, Rabbi Friedlander's service. We also use Mach- Machon Puah's uh, Mashkikot, And uh, I'm really, really pleased to see that uh, the hashkacha service is available not only at Genesis, at our program, but also at individual programs around the city that cater to from couples. It's a, a wonderful thing, and it's increased access to modern-day proper fertility care for thousands and thousands of from couples. It's it's a wonderful thing, and uh, I think we all, as a community, owe a debt of gratitude to Borstein for coming up with the idea of uh, hashkacha, and also for uh, publicizing the importance of Rabbanim getting together and uh, flushing out reproductive halachai would remind the audience that in, I believe, 1981, the Tzitz Eliezer of uh, Eliezer Waldenberg, who's the, really the main medical expert and the Av Beitin in Yerushalayim, he came out with an extensive teshuvah in which. He banned IVF and he had good reasons to do so. It was a halachic analysis. But at that time, in the infancy of IVF, we just didn't accept in halacha that IVF was a viable alternative for um, halachically observant Jews. But today, as I said before, amazingly so, it is accepted across every community, basically. Around the world, every Jewish community, of course, with certain provisos and under certain circumstances, but there are no rabbanim who outright ban ivF and that is an example by the way of torah haim it's a it's a living, breathing Torah that finds ways to help couples the imagine how many Jewish lives would not exist were it not for assisted reproductive technologies it's an amazing thing and uh for me as a practicing physician it's a way to feel close to hashem and to see his manifestation it's almost an open miracle that we see how halakha has evolved in the span of a mere 40 or so years to the point where i would say at least hundreds of thousands of from Jewish kids have come to this world through IVF, including, I might say, people in my own family.
1: I would say that most most people I know, it would be, you'd be very hard pressed these days to find someone who didn't have a friend or a relative who had conceived through assisted reproductive technology. Um, both That's in, right. In, in and in not in the from community and outside of the from community as well. It's, you know, it's a very, It's very, unfortunately, infertility is a very common problem. And we are very fortunate, though, to have a lot of options now to treat it. I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about some, a little bit more about some of the specific treatments. I know we touched upon IUI and IVF. If you could sort of briefly explain what those are and what other options might be out there as well.
2: Well, IUI and IVF are um, well-established techniques, but I should say that some couples will come to consultation depending on their individual circumstances, and they can be helped simply by counseling in terms of lifestyle, in terms of knowing when the woman is ovulating, when is their most fertile time. One of the, the significant dilemmas that couples face is uh, in a woman who has early ovulation before she goes to mikveh, and she ovulates after, uh, after she, uh, I'm sorry, she ovulates before she becomes tehora. Uh, and and by the time she goes to McVeigh, she's already ovulated and missed the boat. And uh, that's something that can be treated easily with medications. Women who do not ovulate can be treated with medications. I wouldn't say it's always a simple process, but sometimes it's a matter of just taking a pill or taking an injection and, uh, and the baby comes easily. So not everything that we do is uh, necessarily high tech and falls into the category of Assisted reproductive technologies. Sometimes there are surgical interventions that we can do, especially for uh, women who were born with congenital defects. So those are time-honored techniques: counseling, medication, surgery, etc. But sometimes there are other kinds of assistance that are necessary. So I will explain what those two terms mean. IUI stands for intrauterine insemination, and it's a way of bringing the sperm closer to the fallopian tubes. The issue with the IUI is the following. During uh, normal natural relations, when sperm are ejaculated, they usually will die in the birth canal. And there is a reason for that, but the only time that they can live there is during the mid-cycle, around the time of ovulation, usually before ovulation for several days and that's because the the uh, growing egg follicle on its way to ovulation starts to make estrogen and the estrogen signals the cervix the or the the uh, bottom part of the uterus the the uh, neck of the uterus if you will to secrete a mucus discharge which many women realize is the harbinger of ovulation and that protects the sperm and allows them to live after relations and they can live there for days so that a couple can have relations for example on a monday and and the woman can ovulate and not again until the woman ovulates on a, on a friday and she could still get pregnant so timing does not need to be exact but there are situations not just uh, where there is a low sperm count but also where there are difficult, sexual difficulties Sometimes when there, are, um, when there are limitations to the number of sperm that can get to the uterus because of the counts, sometimes for unexplained reasons, we'll use this technology. But what we'll do in an intrauterine insemination is thread a very thin catheter through the cervical canal and up into the higher reaches of the uterus, just where the fallopian tubes originate, And that's a way of getting many, many more sperm into the tubes. And the reason that's necessary is because during their passage through the cervix, almost all the sperm die. The cervix filters out both the semen, so seminal fluid never gets into the uterus, and it also filters out most of the sperm. So by bypassing the cervix and doing the insemination into the uterus directly... That's a way of getting an overwhelming number of sperm up into the fallopian tubes. I should add that prior to the insemination procedure, the sperm cells need to be separated from the seminal fluid because seminal fluid cannot be put into the uterus. It can cause infection and very bad pain. So that's the reason why the sperm needs to be processed before it can be inseminated into the uterus shall I go on with in vitro fertilization?
1: Yeah, I think uh, most people would want to hear about that as well.
2: So in vitro fertilization is a way of bringing the eggs and sperm together outside the body. And there are many, many indications to do that. We do that certainly if a woman has blocked fallopian tubes, because that's the only way for the sperm and egg to get together to make an embryo. And then that embryo is placed through the cervix and into the uterus where hopefully implantation will occur. I I say hopefully implantation will occur because, as I explain to every couple, the doctor does not implant the embryo. It's called embryo transfer because what we're doing is just transferring the embryo to the uterus at the right time in the hopes that, with Hashem's help, it will implant, and only, I think, Hashem can implant an embryo. Doctors cannot actually implant an embryo. We can only transfer it. That's a minor point, but an important one. The other indications for doing IVF are when they're very poor sperm or no sperm. Sometimes we have to retrieve the sperm from the man through a surgical procedure. Sometimes we do it for a condition called endometriosis. We can do it when it's unexplained, but the basic first step in in vitro fertilization is the stimulation of the ovaries to make more, or I should say, uh, the ovaries can never make more than one egg, but to grow more than one egg. And that's a process that's limited by what we call the egg reserve. If she's got a good egg supply, she's going to have a lot of eggs retrieved during the egg retrieval process. If she has very few eggs, the medications that she takes is not going to get her to have a lot of eggs because they need to be there to be stimulated. The actual egg retrieval procedure is done using a technique called transvaginal oocyte retrieval and it's done under anesthesia. It takes about 15 minutes. There's no incisions, there's no bandages, there's usually no bleeding. It does not cause a woman to be nida, by the way, because nothing is uh, placed in the uterus. And um, and uh, after the egg retrieval procedure is done, the recovery is about uh, 30 minutes. The woman goes home. She may feel some after effects from the medications, but usually if it's done properly, they're mild. The procedure of egg retrieval is very, very safe. Once the eggs are retrieved, the uh, and that's done by aspirating the egg follicles. We cannot see the actual eggs, but we can see egg follicles. We uh, drain those follicles, we aspirate them, and the embryologists who are in the room next door, the laboratory scientists, will detect the eggs and uh, isolate them and start to work with them in the lab. We get a semen specimen the same day. We process it much the same way as we would for an IUI. And we either incubate the eggs and sperm together, or if there's a male factor, we will inject a single sperm into the egg. It's a process called intracytoplasmic sperm injection or ICSI and ICSI is an amazing procedure that has helped men who previously would have been considered to be sterile to father their own biological children and that's uh, something that's been used in many, many couples around the world. Um, So then in the laboratory, the The embryos, the fertilized eggs, now embryos, will begin to grow. And somewhere during that process, we will replace the embryo into its home in the uterus and hope that it will implant and grow into uh, a fetus that eventually gets born. I should mention that we do have a technique today called vitrification, which refers to freezing embryos. And for many different kinds of reasons, the embryo will not be placed back in the same cycle. Sometimes it's just for the safety of the woman that she should not get a condition called ovarian hyperstimulation. And many times it's because couples ask us to genetically screen their embryos to make sure they're healthy before the embryos go back. So the embryos will be biopsied to make sure they're healthy. They'll be frozen. And after the uh, results are in, they can be put back in a different cycle. I say they, even though the vast majority of the time, we will only put back one embryo in the hopes of avoiding multifetal pregnancy, which was a big problem in our field in the earlier days of IVF. So you can tell me if I've explained that well, and if I haven't, go ahead and ask me questions.
1: So I just think to clarify for people what you mean when you say putting one embryo back to avoid multifetal pregnancy. What you're talking about is you want to avoid twins or triplets, correct?
2: Yes. Uh, Yes. In the earlier days of IVF, it was common to put back two or three or even more embryos depending on the age of the woman and the expectation that pregnancy would or would not occur. But sometimes we would expect that pregnancy would not occur, and it did. And if you put back three embryos, you could get – triplets and sometimes if you put back two, you can still get three and sometimes you even get four. <clears throat> so today we think of IVF as a way to prevent those multifetal pregnancies because they do pose a danger to the woman who's pregnant with more than one or two uh, fetuses, and they certainly pose a danger to the fetuses because um, the more there are, the more premature the babies will be born. And uh, as most of the audience probably knows, prematurity and especially severe prematurity can lead to lifelong disabilities in those kids. The, uh, the procedure of fetal reduction, which used to be common, is now extremely rare because our specialty has, um, ha- has basically mandated that most embryo transfers, especially in women under the age of 37, Will be single embryo transfers, and, and that's a that's a mark of a good quality program where most uh, embryo transfers are done with the single embryo. Of course, that's much easier to do when genetic screening has been done, and we know that the embryo that's being replaced has a good viability and good uh, birth potential.
1: So this whole process. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a parent of four kids and I know that raising kids is gets pretty expensive, but having them in the first place also can. And I know that you have done a lot of advocacy work to help, um, to help, you know, parents who people who want to be parents, obtain the insurance coverage and the help they need to undergo these procedures. So how much should a couple kind of ex, What's this? What should this? What would the sticker shock be expected to be? How much does you know an average treatment cost, and what resources are there for them to help if they need help paying for that or trying to get their insurance to cover it?
2: Well, let me say at first that um, there are two kinds of practices. Uh, there are practices that are basically cash practices where you need to pay a la carte for every procedure, every test, every um, everything that happens in that office. Our practice has never been that type of practice. We're an insurance-based practice, and uh, virtually all of the patients that come to Genesis have some degree of insurance. The reason for the advocacy has been with the purpose of opening up access, not just to our community, but... To all couples who are uh, who who are insured and uh, getting the insurance companies to to cover ivF you know it was very unfair that many couples and this was also something that we took a leadership in back in the early 2000s, Governor Pataki signed a bill into law at Maimonides that uh, mandated that commercial insurers had to cover all of the diagnostic testing that was done for infertility, and as well, all of the treatment that was done for infertility, but he had to carve out IVF because of a lot of pressure from both insurance companies and uh, the church, which is opposed on the record for, uh, uh, since the beginning of time, uh, they're opposed to IVF. That was considered to be the poison pill that, uh, that would have defeated that legislation. So we had coverage for a lot of couples, but somehow the insurance companies were able to deny coverage for IVF, even when it was medically necessary, as if it were a vanity procedure, as if couples were requesting a, uh, a facelift or, or breast implants or some kind of uh, other cosmetic surgery. Obviously, having a baby is, uh, is not the same in the not the same league. And we wanna say that uh, we, have, um, we have led the World Health Organization to define infertility as a disease. And we brought that information to legislators and now the commercial insurers are, uh, are mandated since January 1st of this year to cover IVF when it's medically necessary. And another thing that we achieved in that bill was that women and men who are facing a fertility uh, destructive procedure, such as chemotherapy for cancer, they have fertility preservation covered now by New York State law. And we're very proud of that. The problem with IVF and insurance is that the law still is only uh, uh, effective if the Person who needs the coverage, it has a hundred or more people in their insurance group. So individually insured um, uh, patients do not have the coverage, and we are back again in Albany this year, trying to expand the IVF benefit to patients who need it but who are in smaller groups or who have individual insurance. So that's an ongoing. Project. But in our practice, almost everybody has some degree of insurance, but not everybody. And for those people, there are different ways to fund IVF. I'm speaking now about IVF. Fertility treatments can range, if it's an IUI treatment, can range from, let's say, $1,000 or $1,500 per cycle to IVF, which is going to cost probably. 10 times as much and that's exclusive of um that's excluding medications which can be very expensive so some couples need assistance there are there's something called the new york state grant program and uh, that was signed into law with uh, the help of governor pataki back in the day in those times they used money from a tobacco uh, lawsuit to fund Uh, several million dollars that were given to various IVF clinics to subsidize IVF treatment for our patients. I'm happy to say that we have participated in in that so-called New York State demonstration project uh, since that time. Unfortunately, those grants have become lower and lower as the state finds finds itself with more financial difficulties. So we still have the grants but they're uh, they're limited in each individual IVF clinic that's been selected to uh, receive them. There is, of course, Boneolam. Thank God for them. They they have a wonderful mission. They raise money for people who understand the cost uh, sometimes of having a child, and they give it away. They they work with uh, clinics all around the area, and uh, we give. A, of course special discounts to bona olam and they will fund the treatment there are also loans that people can take specifically for uh, for supporting treatment there is something called the Hebrew free loan society which has been around for many many decades and you don't even have to be jewish to have a loan from the hebrew free loan society and what they do is they give loans to people who require certain treatments up to a certain amount And uh, they're very generous in the way that in the terms that they set for paying back those loans. So those can be done. There are companies that will give uh, loans with interest. There are uh, programs that we participate in that will actually give a couple a, uh, a, a sort of a money back guarantee that if they don't if they don't achieve a live birth over a certain amount of time, a certain number of cycles they will get a substantial portion of their money back so that they can go on to pursue other options. And there are many programs in the area who have these sort of multi-cycle packages that that patients can buy into in order to, quote unquote, protect their investment. So there are options there. We're always available. The financial counselors are available at Genesis and then other programs to assist patients who are in need. It's not like you need to be a millionaire in order to have uh, a child through IVFs. Uh, That is a mythology. It it, it is true in other parts of the country where where infertility is not covered and everything is paid out of pocket. You hear couples spending uh, 40 or 50 or more thousand dollars for fertility care. Uh, that's not something that's that uh, run of the mill in a practice like ours
1: okay. so that sounds like it's you know very hopeful for couples even if they were you know worried about other about those kind of barriers that could stop them from having children so
2: this has been well we we we, we try to to make things uh, to arrange things so that the couple will have enough money left over to bring up their kids and right. educate them and as a parent myself, I, I know the cost of yeshiva education, and it's, <laughs> it is yeah. it is a problem that we need to take care of as a community, but we certainly don't want patients to use all of their resources and, and expend everything that they have uh, to just to get a baby.
1: Right. So at this point, do you think you could sort of kind of sum up for us the main points you want listeners to take away about reproductive endocrinology and infertility and treatment and And anywhere else they could look for more resources or information if they needed it?
2: Uh, Most practices like ours have websites. So if you have access to the internet, you can go to genesisfertility.com and there are hundreds of pages of information there depending on what you perceive your problem to be. But of course, the best thing to do is actually to arrange a consultation with a reproductive specialist. And you need to get a sense of the chemistry over there how is the practice run how are the people are they uh, are they friendly and focused on individual care so you, you need to start out somewhere and it's always good to pick a practice that is going to be um, that's going to be convenient and the reason i say it's conveniently located because when a woman In particular is in the midst of treatment oftentimes that entails frequent visits and um, and you don't want to be spending hours and hours commuting when I see patients who come from far and wide to our clinic and they do it always concerns me that they should not get exhausted during the treatment process because uh, just the way that things work the monitoring of a woman's response to treatment is going to be very, very closely uh, monitored. And and we don't want that to be something that's a, a overly burdensome for the patients undergoing care. They usually have enough problems to deal with, including uh, anxiety. Everybody is anxious because they don't know when this process will resolve itself. And also uh, often depression sets in especially when things take longer than they've expected. So there are practices around. When I first started in this field, there was one or two IVF centers in New York. Uh, Right now in Manhattan, you can probably find one within a few blocks of walking or if you uh, live and work in Manhattan. It's a very commonly available uh, medical facility and, uh, and care. There are a lot of excellent doctors around you need to make sure that you're going to a full service fertility center where they have not only an IVF program, but they have a urologist working on their staff or they have uh, psychological services on their staff where they have genetic services on their staff. You want to go for to a comprehensive care clinic, not to a place where you're going to have to run around seeking different services. So that's number one. Number two, I think one of the things that we see with our, with the, the world of infertile people is that they are chasing the secret of life and they want to go to the doctor who has the secret of life. We see this happening. People go through one treatment cycle and they uh, they're unsuccessful they move on to the next place. And then it doesn't work there, they move on. Many couples will come to see us after having been to three or four or five different centers. And there's a it's almost kind of a a circular process, a merry-go-round, if you will, where the people who do not get pregnant with us, they'll go to another practice almost right away after the first failure. And if it doesn't work there, they'll go to somebody else. Things do happen over time. And of course, the patients who go to the other centers well those patients from the other centers come to us and the reason that that happens is because the truth is no doctor has the secret of life the the next doctor is always going to build on what happened in your cycle that failed and that's the way that uh, the process works properly because we know there's no such thing as an intervention that when it works is gonna work 100% of the time, and if it doesn't work the first time, it's not going to work. Things take time, and establishing good relationships with the people who are trying to take care of you is almost as important as the success itself because it can take time. Of course, we love when things happen right away, but even when it happens right away, the lengthy process to get to that positive pregnancy test is sometimes overwhelming. And I I suppose the uh, one related thing and the last thing is that many couples who seek fertility care do confront, at some point along the way, failure. Let's face it, the older you are when this happens or the more severe the fertility problem is, the more likely it is to fail. But that doesn't mean that you won't have a baby. You may have an excellent prognosis to become pregnant, but what I said as at the outset is still true. It is very complicated to make another human being. And if there is a failure along the way, the people who are taking care of you are learning from those failures. And you need to learn from those failures also. It's not just in fertility care, it's in all aspects of life. When you see people who are successful there's almost never a person who has gone on a very straight trajectory from uh, to to success many people the most successful people that we know have met failure in their lives but there is as the title of a lovely book says an upside to down the upside of down is that you learn from what has happened in the past and sometimes we see this And we see it in a very open way, that the people who have gone from failure to success are people who were very focused and very positive and knew that a a setback did not mean that they would not eventually have the family that they wanted. And so how we react to failure is a very important part of the process of success when it comes to fertility care, much easier said than done because there is so much depression and anxiety. But you need to keep very focused. You need to have an honest discussion with your doctor about prognosis after failure. And one of the biggest sources of failure is when couples are so overwhelmed with the, the failed procedure that they just drop out of care despite the fact that their prognosis is good. So my recommendation is to take charge of your life, to obviously your lifestyle, get control of your lifestyle, make sure that you're healthy, that you exercise, that you take vitamins, that you avoid toxins, that you control your weight. Go through the proper tests, find the doctor and the practice, because not just the doctor, it's the staff who can take care of you in a way that is friendly and courteous and compassionate, where you have a good feeling with the staff. Make sure you treat them well, because they'll treat you well too, that's, your, that's their job. And understand that fertility care involves a process that does have ups and downs. It's been called a roller coaster ride. Some women get pregnant after striving for a very long time and they miscarry. That doesn't mean they're never going to have a healthy baby. Don't be totally down and don't be totally um, uh, stymied and paralyzed by the failures in this as in anything else. Push through them and that eventually will get most couples to the success that they want.
1: That is definitely a great and uplifting message for everybody. This is a marathon, not a sprint. And it's definitely important to just maintain a positive attitude and, you know, stick with it and stay hopeful. Um, anything else that you want to add?
2: I'm going to leave the questioning to you, Dr. Nemetsky. <laughs>
0: so,
2: so I do want to add my apology to the uh, to using your the old name by which I called you
1: that's really fine we have known each other for a very long time i actually have to say oh, okay. on a personal note you are probably the reason i am a doctor um so of so let our listeners kind of in on this um i met dr Grazi when i went to school with his daughter sally who is a wonderful drama therapist and actually has uh, one of our other podcast episodes is an is an interview with her um and she, we were classmates in school and Dr. Grazi came to talk to our class about um, fertility and halakha. And I thought this was the coolest thing ever. And I was trying to figure out what to do in the summer after high school because you know you couldn't just sit at home. And I wasn't a camp person. And I remember asking, Sally, you know, do you think you think your dad would let me come and see his office and kind of hang out and see what he does and what it's like? And And she asked you and you said, great. And I spent the summer there and it just, that was when I decided I was going to medical school. Um, so just on a personal note, I am doctor anything because I worked with you that summer.
2: Uh, I'm for clubbed. No, seriously, Dr. Nemetsky, I want to tell you something that people who work in this field, uh, really, it, it, is a, it is a field that attracts, by the way, many, many from people. Because you get a feeling that you're working close to Hashem, and I have to say that one of the uh, one of the most thrilling things that we do is we change people's lives. And sometimes we, obviously, the 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 most obvious example is when our couples uh, give birth, and 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 we see those kids grow. I live and work in the community, so I see uh, my kids all the time. And uh, they're all already at the age where some of them are married and have their own families. It is, Baruch Hashem, a blessing to work in this field. I thank Hashem every day for for showing me the way into this. But there is another aspect to the field, which is that uh, we change people's lives in other ways as well, in educating our uh, medical students and residents and opening up their eyes to the wonders of uh of biology and of what Hashem has given us and revealed to us in our time. So um, if I've helped you to start your career, that's just one extra thing to be thankful for. And uh, thank you for reminding me of, of those uh, those days of your <laughs> I, I <laughs> wish you success in what you're doing. Thank you.
1: thank you very much. And thank you for everything you've, for thank you for speaking with to us today. And, you know, thank you on behalf of, you know, myself and the other students you've inspired. and on behalf of the parents and Jewish children who are here because of people like you. Thank you.
2: My pleasure. I wish everybody Purim Sameah. Uh, but maybe this will get broadcast afterwards. But uh, still, those are my sentiments. And it was a pleasure speaking to you, by the way, after all these years.
1: Thank you. Likewise. Chag Sameah. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast. If you've enjoyed this, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share this with your friends. For more information, check out our Instagram at Joma underscore org. Check out our website, www.joma.org, that's J O W M A dot org, or email us at health at joma.org.